University, 14 were accomplished organists at Jena, Anstadt, Ordorf, Magdeburg, Mühlhausen, Weimar and Lahm. 12 were cantors or musical directors. One was official court musician to Count Ludwig Gunther at Anstad. One was musician to the Duke of Saxe-Eisenach, another to the Duke of Saxe-Meiningen, a third to Count Hohenlohe, and still another Kapellmeister to the Duke of Weimar. At least ten of the Bachs were composers of choral preludes, cantatas, masses, suites, fugues, and concertos. Two of them were notable players on the oboe. Three played the viola da gamba, and two were experts on the violin. For several generations, indeed, every professional musician within certain districts of Germany had come to be known as a Bach. The object of all music should be the glory of God, observed Johann Sebastian. Any devout man could do as much as I have done, if he worked as hard. Sebastian had been brought up, good Lutheran that he was, in the Protestant tradition of hard work. You cannot hope to become one of God's elect on high if you do not consecrate yourself to a long and laborious candidature here on earth. Hard work meant lifting your load from the ground, hoisting it up on your shoulder, and bearing it steadily upward in your journey to the Lord's shrine. Life was a hard struggle. There were tremendously heavy forces endeavouring to keep man down in the dust from which stemmed his mortality. But, of course, the true path of man was forward and upward, and this in spite of his load, indeed, because of his load. Sometimes the greatest obstacles against a man's progress are not impersonal but human forces, thought Bach, the stupidities of your fellow men. It is they who keep you down with their ridiculous rules and regulations, he had, for example, been installed as organist in the church of Anstad. It was a fine organ that belonged to the church. It responded like a sensitive animal to his touch. But the church officials did not respond as cordially. They did not like the way he accompanied the congregation in their hymns, and they had never experienced any trouble with their other organists. It was a perfectly simple matter to keep in step with the congregation and to play the same tunes all the time. They sent him a formal complaint. For years, our organists have played the Sunday choral music without variations. But you persist in making variations and intermixing many strange sounds that confound the entire congregation. What in the world was he doing to the sacred strains of their music? Furthermore, he had been appointed with the understanding that he would rehearse the choir boys and teach them patiently. But up to that time he had remained selfishly with his organ, and hadn't spent a minute with the boys. Therefore, you are to declare whether you will rehearse the scholars in the future or not. If you aren't ashamed to take your wages, you mustn't be ashamed to teach the scholars. Well, that dispute was soon ended. The church officials got rid of their lazy organist. Bach secured a position in another church. Not a bad salary here. The wandering organist couldn't complain. Eighty-five gulden, twelve bushels of corn, six trusses of brushwood. They even sent him a wagon to transport his furniture to the new town. And as a bonus, for he seemed a rather likable fellow, the town council offered him three pounds of fish every year. But imagine his audacity. As soon as he caught sight of the organ, he declared that he didn't like it. It was too small. It had been good enough for all the other organists. They hadn't complained about the insufficiency of the pressure on the pipes and the inadequacy of the wind passage. What if the 32-foot stop was missing? They hadn't turned up their noses. 
What manner of man was this, anyhow? He actually wanted a peal of bells, a glockenspiel connected to the pedals. The members of the council breathed a sigh of relief when Bach left the position. Yet people began to whisper that he was a good organist. He had a giant fist. He could stretch twelve notes with his left hand while he performed running passages with his three middle fingers. Some said he could trill with his thumb and forefinger and at the same time play a melody with his fourth and fifth fingers. And what a physique! He was bigger and huskier than any other organist in Germany. And a merry and companionable fellow for all that. Ready to hold his own with anybody over a mug of beer. None of your temperamental and wizened and aloof little old musicians, but a man of the people, pale and hearty and tough-muscled, like a blacksmith presiding over the bellows of a forge rather than the pipes of an organ. Looked as if he would be more at home fanning a flame instead of pumping a current of air. And they never forgot how he had put that upstart French organist Jean-Louis Marchand in his place. And the story was told in family circles from one generation to the next. Louis had regarded himself as the world's foremost player. The court at Versailles had turned his head, and when he came to Germany, the princes showered him with medals for his performances. There arose a rumour among people who liked to discuss such matters that he was a finer performance than Sebastian. But Bach's friends would concede nothing. They persuaded Bach to write a letter to Marchand, challenging him to a musical duel. Marchand accepted the challenge graciously enough. A jury of musicians was polled, and a time and place was set. A large audience gathered to witness the contest. Bach arrived promptly, but where was Marchand? He had taken the first coach out of Germany back to his beloved France. The reputation of Bach was now beyond dispute. But fame is a capricious wind. The weather vane of public approval began suddenly to veer away from Sebastian. People said that too many honours were turning Bach's head, that he was becoming too puffed up with his own importance, that when he played the organ, he was so busy admiring the ring he had received from the heir to the throne of Sweden that he forgot to watch the keyboard. It was too bad, whispered some of his slanderers, that Sebastian couldn't meet the great Handel, for then he would be able to realise his own littleness. They especially resented what they were pleased to call his unreasonable arrogance. Once, when he applied for a position as church organist, he was told that he must pay a sum of money into the church treasury, a necessary and time-honoured custom. Upon his refusal to comply with this custom, the presiding officer admonished him sternly that if one of the angels of Bethlehem came from heaven and desired to be organist of St. Jacob's Church, but if he had no money to pay into the treasury... There would be nothing else for him to do but to fly back to heaven. But Sebastian apparently was no friend of the angels, for he persisted in his stubbornness and declined the job. And when he did get his next job, his thoughts, it was rumoured, were intent upon the wine cellar of the church instead of being centred upon higher things. They can't make head or tail out of him. From day to day he grows stouter out of sheer laziness. Original compositions... Fiddlesticks. Let him attend like an honest man to his regular duties, duties for which he is being paid. Let him spend more time with the choir boys, instead of going off, heaven alone knows where. Let him play the organ and fear the Lord and be satisfied with his salary, or else we'll get another organist in his place. Someone had the audacity to whisper 
My good friends, you do not understand this Bach. He is a genius. Genius? We can't use genius. What we need is a cantor who is able to play the church music in a respectable and conventional manner. But, apart from such disputes, it was a happy life he led, a life brimful of music. Organist at Ordorf, Arnstadt, Mühlhausen, Lübeck, Leipzig, musician to the Weimar court, favorite of Frederick the Great. For many years, King Frederick, that mercurial soldier-poet-musician who was laying the foundations for a mighty German empire, had been urging Bach to give a performance on the organ at Berlin. And at last Sebastian agreed to enter the earthly Valhalla and to sue the battle-scarred warrior king with his strains. When Frederick received word of his arrival, his old eyes lit up. Gentlemen, he said to his assembled courtiers, this is an eventful day. Sebastian Bach is here. The old organist entered the court in his traveling clothes and shuffled through one room after the other with the entire court at his heels, sitting down and performing in turn on each of the emperor's seven pianos. Frederick had heard that Bach was somewhat of a composer of music. Bach modestly acknowledged this. Write me out the subject for a fugue, and I shall try to develop it into six parts, he suggested. Frederick wrote a theme on paper. The old musician, with hunched and tired shoulders, but with fingers that had never lost their youth, sat down at the keyboard and transformed the emperor's theme into a thousand cascades of melody. Frederick shouted in admiration, My God, there is only one great Bach! One great Bach, but many little ones. His procreative powers were as prolific as his creative. But twice married, he raised a family of twenty children. Playful as a boy himself, he was always in the presence of youngsters. For in addition to his family brood, he was surrounded by a host of pupils. From all over Europe, they flocked to learn the mystery of his technical magic. They adored him and tried to catch something of his own skill as they practiced the finger exercises he gave them. He was an eccentric old loon with a welter of novel ideas. For example, he taught them to use the thumb and the little finger, as well as the other three fingers on the keyboard, an almost unheard of departure from the conventional way of playing the scales, and with what amazing results. But it was hard work, this constant use of the entire hand, with the wrist and the elbow held always horizontally to the keyboard. And so whenever the pupils grew tired of their monotonous practice, he would jot down melodic little preludes for them to play as a relaxation. And sometimes he would take up one of his more complicated keyboard pieces and improvise upon it in a sort of reverie. And then at the end, You must learn to play it like me, Christoph Kranschel. That is how it sounds. This indeed is how it sounded. But what was a poor devil of a pupil to do with a madman who improvised in keys that were complete strangers to the human ear, and who leaped about recklessly from key to key without the slightest halt in the flow of his melody? Yet there were some who understood him. For example, his sons, Johann Friedrich and Karl Emanuel. These two boys had inherited the madness in his blood, no wonder they were fond of one another, this father and these sons. They would sit for hours in the parlor and sing chorales without end. Or each would pick up an instrument and improvise a theme in harmony and counterpoint, blending with the others into an orchestral salvo of music. 
As for the other members of the family, they too belonged within the charmed circle of musical understanding. Why, the very letters of their surname, B-A-C-H, spelled out in melodic succession. A family of strange talents and sensitive nerves, these Bachs, especially Father Sebastian. If you felt music keenly, too keenly, you had to be quick-tempered toward those professional organists whose every clumsy note stabbed you to the heart. You couldn't help tossing your wig at their heads and telling them they ought to be shoemakers instead of musicians. And this gave you the reputation for being a nasty old crank. Nasty old crank, indeed. What could these numbskulls understand of your superior vision? You sat at the organ along with a thousand others, but you did not feel the same dull things that they felt. They sat with both their feet on the earth and looked with a fixed horizontal stare at the blank walls ahead. You did so too at first. But one day a strange thought disturbed you, and then it all became as clear as day. Man must look not only straight ahead, but up. Are not all the churches built to glance at the sun? The very plan of life, for we stand upright on two legs, is along vertical lines, and so must it be with music. Just as the child tilts its face to seek guidance from its father, so must the melody that man sings look upward, ever upward. The notes ascend the scales and climb the dizzy octaves, and then swoop down to catch their breath. The structure of music, like the structure of churches, must be along the lines of ascent and descent. The melody must form a highway from earth to heaven and from heaven back to earth. As one group of notes enters upon its journey along the highway, a second group prepares to follow in its wake. And as soon as this second group is taken to the road, a third and a fourth group prepare to follow in their turn. And at any given moment of this eternally recurring ascent and descent, scores of little troops of notes are in various stages of the journey, either on the way upward or on the way downward again, to take by the hand new parties on the glorious trip. And though each party sets out from the terminal with measured punctuality, that is, on a strict time schedule and at equal intervals, some of the more impetuous notes overtake the more sluggish notes, so that there is a constant intermingling and helter-skelter motion up and down the scales, flights and pursuits and captures and escapes, the origin of Sebastian Bach's fugues. But Bach is not content to leave matters like this. He must see to it that there shall be no confusion, no discord in this constant succession and interpenetration of sound. The notes must live together with one another in complete harmony. Yes! That was the word hard.